Welcome back to season two of Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, yours truly, the author of my what-if year, ex-CEO, sometimes intern, coffee-obsessed mom. Extra Shot is part podcast, part talk show, part games, advice, and whatever else my delightful guests and I can cook up for you. My aim is to bring some hilarity, inspiration, and ultimately a jolt of energy to your day. Because we all need an extra shot of something. What's in your cup? Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my wonderful extra shot friends. How are you? I'm your host, Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, and I know I say this all the time, but I really cannot wait for you to hear today's guest because I picked up Natasha Alford's brand new book. It's out today for those of you who are listening to this on launch day, American Negra. It's a memoir about her life. I picked it up, leaving Miami, and I finished it somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean on the way back to Edinburgh. It was so compelling, so beautifully written, a memoir about identity, about what it means to be a woman. It's just, I just loved it. I loved all of it, and I loved it so much. So you're going to hear how much I loved it because I pretty much gushed through this whole interview. You're welcome, Natasha. But let me tell you a little bit about who she is before we jump in. So Natasha S. Alford was born in Syracuse, New York. She was the only child of a public school teacher and a U.S. Army veteran, and she honed a love for oratory and writing while attending the Syracuse City School District. She is a graduate of Harvard University and Northwestern's Medal School, I hope I said that right, of journalism, and an alumna of Teach for America's DC Corps. And by the way, she is also currently completing a Master of Public Policy at Princeton University because she's not busy enough. Natasha has built a career as an award-winning journalist, host, and TV commentator, highlighting overlooked stories, histories, and perspectives. She was the deputy editor of The Grio for four years before becoming the VP of Digital Content. She oversaw the launch of numerous video initiatives and the brand's first podcast, executive produced a documentary, Afro-Latinx Revolution, Puerto Rico, and a feature-length film, Surviving Solitary. You can see her on your screen. She's an anchor for The Grio's cable TV network. She is a CNN political analyst, a role she's been taking on since 2021. And she's been published in The New York Times, The Guardian, Oprah Daily, Time, and Vogue. Natasha lives in New Jersey with her family, and she devotes her free time to mentoring aspiring journalists and youth through organizations like the Op-Ed Project. This book gave me all the feels. It brought an entirely new perspective on Latinx identity. I just loved it so much. I think Natasha is completely brilliant, and I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. Natasha, in your beautiful blue blazer, you've come a long way from your JCPenney clearance section pinstripe suit. <laughs> Welcome to Extra Shot. I love it, Alicia. <laughs> Listen to me, your whole life for like the next several months is going to be people quoting your own words back to you. And I, for me, it never gets old. I'm like, oh, I said that? God, that's so much smarter than I am in normal life. <laughs> <laughs> it's trippy, but again, it's the highest honor. And I'm so thankful to be on the show and so grateful that you read the book. Thanks for reading it. So I was telling you right before we started recording, but I'll say it again for the benefit of the listeners, that I picked this book up in Leaving Miami on my first flight, and I finished it somewhere over the Atlantic. I chose it over the wide selection of new release and old romantic comedy films that were on my plane. Once I started, I couldn't put it down. I could not put it down. Wow. Wow. 
that is just, it's amazing. I mean, when you're writing it, as you know, as an author, it's a sculpture and you're cutting and you're cutting and you're saying, okay, what is actually necessary for the story? And you wonder if you made the right decisions. And so just to hear that you got from beginning to end is really affirming. And just, I'm just so happy. I am a person who will put a book down. I'm not into it. My time is too precious. I cannot continue. Yeah. That's one of the great things about growing up. I learned that it's okay to not finish a book that you start. It is. I have a ton of half-read books. Uh, Some I didn't get past, you know, the the first chapter or two. Some of it is just time. And I'm just a book junkie. And if you're marketing anything to me, I'm going to buy it. But yeah, that was my dream to take people on a journey in which they were invested in how it ended. So I just, I like want to, I feel like I know so much about you. I want to know everything else about you, but okay, let's start with like, tell me where you are today. You said you're in Richmond, Virginia. You're on the road. Yes. Yes. So I usually am not just hanging out with chandeliers in the background. It's fancy. Uh, I it's, like very, it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much giving like historical museum. So I am near Richmond, Virginia, near Petersburg, Virginia, actually, And I'm here to speak at an HBCU, Virginia State University. They have an innovation summit. And I'm excited. I'm I'm on a panel. We're talking about cultural innovation and using your voice and, you know, honing your personal brand, which is very much on brand with the story of this book. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm doing today. And I'm catching you at this kind of amazing time because... This episode will air on the pub date for American Negra, but you're still a couple weeks away from that. So how are you yeah. feeling about the buildup for the book? It is amazing. It's like looking at a Christmas present under the tree, right? And the unwrapping is when the readers get into it. And I start to hear what they say, what they're reacting to, uh, what resonates, what makes people angry, you know, all of that. And so, yeah, you're just sitting on the couch looking at that pretty gift under the tree and thinking about the journey of what it took to 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 get to that final product. So I'm, I'm trying to revel in it. I'm trying to also push away a little bit of anxiety because when you write a book, you can't control what's happening in the world. That's true. You don't know you don't know what's what's coming down the news cycle. And I feel like each day there's a new story that makes the book more relevant, but also brings out some of the tensions and the conflicts in the book. Everything from affirmative action to DEI. I mean, all these stories are big in the news right now and they're generating really strong emotional reactions. And so, yeah, I, I, I you know, part of me wonders if the book will have moments of being caught in kind of the culture wars that we're in right now. But I chose memoir intentionally. And the hope was that it would, rather than erect barriers, maybe bring some of those down, maybe invite people to hear the story and to not see this as another, you know, what's what's your label? You know, what side are you on? But just this isn't a story of the American dream. Right. And it is a story of girlhood in America. There are so many universal truths that I think are part of this story. And so I hope to invite more people in than leave them out, even if they think they know what a CNN political analyst would write about. I think one of the things you do so well in the book is there are so many parts. I highlighted so many pieces of it. I was reading out my iPad, so I had to like 
e-highlight them. And I'm going to yeah. put some back to you that I particularly liked. But I think there are elements of every person, even those who don't share the specific identities that you share, that they can feel in that book. Because there is, it, it really does make people feel like, oh, this person's life is different from mine. And yet we have so much in common. I think you bridge mm-hmm. that gap incredibly well. So, okay. So I want to know Thank kind you. of from the beginning, what made you decide you wanted to write your story and that you wanted to do it in a book length project? Mm-hmm. Well, I think to be an author, you have to to love reading. So that's the the first seed, right? I absolutely love reading. Reading saved my life. You know, being a only child, working class family, Syracuse, New York, I was going to the library. Like that's what I did. Mm-hmm. So I think that appreciation for reading helped me to look at my life through the lens of an author. I was always searching for meaning. I was always trying to understand also from a historical perspective, like why things were the way they were and why I was experiencing certain things. And then I think that, you know, obviously people told me, oh, you should write a book one day, right? We all sort of hear that at a certain point in our life. But I I found myself on a journey when I started to make intentional decisions like, I'm leaving this job. I'm going after this. And the journey was so remarkable. I was like, this has to be documented. Like it it has to be shared. Someone else could benefit from hearing and knowing that if you step out on faith, there really is a reward on the other side. Uh, So there's a little bit of evangelism in that (laughs) of wanting people to to experience, you know, the, the joy that I experienced by taking off the burden of trying to appear successful or to appear as if I'd made it and really being honest with myself about what I wanted out of life and just the the freedom that came with that. And so, yes, the, the doing it as a book, it worked out. Uh, when I first moved to New York City, so this is chapter, this is the Becoming a Griot chapter. Uh-huh. I actually started going to memoir writing classes. Okay. And again, just planting a seed. I wasn't anybody in journalism. I, no one knew anything about my work, but I just started going to this memoir writing class just to, you know, little by little start to think about how I would tell the story one day. And, you know, here we are. Did you keep diaries as a kid? So the book moves chronologically. We start out when you're a kid. You have an incredible self-awareness. And I know that you are obviously reflecting back on that time, but you know it's kind of extraordinary, these situations that you were in and this understanding that you had of your place in these different communities, in the Black community, in the Latina community, from a very young age. How did you access that childhood you? Did you go back and look mm-hmm. at stuff or was it all just like in there? What was a little bit of your process for that? Yeah, so I am a collector so many documents, like so many primary source documents. If I was in a play, I've, I've got the program. Oh <laughs> <laughs> if I if I gave a speech at the American Legion Auxiliary, I've got the speech like printed out somewhere. Um, so I had all of those primary documents in true historian journalist fashion. I did keep a diary when I was younger, but surprisingly, I didn't draw too much from the diary entries uh, that I was able to find. Mm -hmm. I think there was this balance between uh, trying to provide what I know now, right? The sort of adult perspective uh, while still capturing the voice. I think what was challenging was maybe just those moments where you're writing and you cringe. You're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't <laughs> believe I said that. <laughs> <laughs> 
those are the hard parts. But the emotions of, you know, just living through all those things, they've never gone away. Like I can access them. They're 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 locked away. And there was a lot of, you know, closing my eyes and thinking about how I felt in those moments. And so these scenes that you see, they've been like movies to me. Sometimes it felt like memory was a curse in my life. Like, why do I remember things so well? Why can't I stop thinking about this thing that happened? Why, you know, I could always go back to those moments so easily. But now that I'm an author, I recognize that it served a purpose uh, to be able to to do that, uh, that it's it's not a curse to remember. It's, it's sometimes it's a blessing. So yeah, that's, that's how I did I love it. it. That's beautiful. I mean, there are some moments that are so real. So, okay. One of my favorite chapters was your quince chapter, the chapter about your quinceanera. <laughs> yes. Because in, a, in like a totally different way, I can also relate to not feeling enough a part of the Latino community. And one really? of the things that's been amazing coming out of my book experience has been how the book has been embraced by the Latino community because my Spanish is good now, but it wasn't mm-hmm. when I was growing up. You know, my mom is Jewish American and not Cuban. So, and I grew up in Miami, whereas majority Cuban population. So people would always be like, you don't look Cuban. You're not, you don't speak Spanish. You're not Cuban enough. And that was really cutting to me because that was the mm-hmm. side of my identity that I associated with. So I want to, I want to read this little quote from that chapter. You say, mm-hmm. to me, Saying I was Black was not about downplaying my Puerto Rican roots, but about rejecting a system that seemed to have rejected me by default. I didn't look like the Latinos people expected to see in America. It seemed like everyone had gotten a clear memo. And so, you know, a lot of your evolution and kind of coming to terms with being Afro-Latina or however you're choosing to describe yourself now is kind of a journey, a real journey that you were on. Where do you see yourself now? Mm. So I see myself now accepting that there is no me without both sides, Mm. right? Both sides of my culture, understanding the influence of my mother. My God, when you write a book, and also if you write a book about people who are still with you Mm. on this side of the planet, (laughs) the the digging that you have to do, you know, the honest conversations that you have to have if you want to maintain those relationships, Mm -hmm. you just discover new things. And so I think the younger version of me was very protective, right? In feeling rejected, I said, well, my response then is to protect myself and to sort of double down on, I'm going to go with, you know, sort of proclaiming myself as being a part of the community that doesn't question why I'm there. Mm-hmm. But now in talking to my mother and reflecting and, you know, going through all of our, our photos and our memories, I'm like, wow. I, I mean, I was raised by a Latina mom, mm-hmm. right? This Puerto Rican woman, every single aspect of who I am, you know, <laughs> the way I interact with the world is influenced by her, mm-hmm. right? And so just because others may make assumptions about me, I shouldn't reject that part of myself or feel that, you know, I can't take up space, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because I, I actually don't think that I rejected my Latinidad as much as I felt I didn't want to have to explain it. Right. And so it was a a coping mechanism, uh, a simplification uh, (laughs) in terms of how I would move through the world. That was a decision that I made. And so this, this book is documenting those attempts to 
take up space mm-hmm. uh, to figure out like where my people are on the other side who get me <laughs> and who aren't surprised by, you know, my existence or by my experience. And so by the end of the book, the readers will see that there was always room to be both. Yeah. Uh, there was always room to to take up space. And really it's about it's about finding your people, it's about finding your history. Wow, the power of history. You know, the power of history to change the way you see yourself and your, your relationships to others. Like that's the academic in me, right? Like seeking out, I want to know the stories. <laughs> I want to know how we got here. How did Puerto Ricans end up in the north? Yeah. Like upstate New York. I learned uh, so much. I learned so much actually from a historical perspective in reading the book. Yay. Good. Uh, also, I did not know that Harvard had its own KKK chapter uh in the twenties. That was enlightening. A little bit awkward, right? Lightning, uh, <laughs> I was like, damn, I didn't know that either. Um, has yeah, your, so yeah, no, need has all your that. mom, has your mom read the book in its final form? She has my mother and my father and your father. And how do they feel about it? I bet they're so proud of you. <laughs> my dad really likes the book mm-hmm. and he, he, I was really anxious about what he would say. You know, there's, you know, obviously a daddy's little girl kind of element <laughs> of my yeah. story. Yeah. Lots of little girls want their dad's approval. And uh, I've spent much of my life, you know, fighting for my dad's approval. And so he really liked the book. He he sat down. He's like, you know, I'm proud of you. I think you've done a good job. And my mother, I think she likes the book too. She's just very cautious. <laughs> so we did, we did have our moments where she called me and she was like, do you have to put that in there? Or can you change this part? And out of respect, I did. There were there are definitely parts of the story that, you know, I edited uh, out of respect for my mother and love for my mother and protecting my mom, but was still able to retain like the truth of the story. So yes, they both read it. And for anybody who's writing a book, I would encourage you to not be afraid. Uh, this was healing for me, not just with my parents, but with other people who are mentioned in the book. I tried to get to almost everyone who I mentioned, even if their name is not included. And there were definitely some, you know, broken relationships or relationships that we just kind of never addressed what happened in the past. And I, in in writing this book, I was brought back to people from my past and we were able to heal. And so that's really powerful. So I I encourage people when appropriate uh, to not be afraid of your past or, you know, think that certain relationships are completely dead because sometimes there's healing that still needs to happen. It's a very scary thing, isn't it? Because you are putting how that memory or that story exists in your mind out there. And I was terrified of showing my story to other people because I was like, what if they remembered it a completely different way? And that feels very frightening when you're trying to tell a true story. And I think coming to terms with the idea that the story is your truth, and so that's the only truth that you're really able to tell, is such an important part of writing a memoir. But I love that it's been healing for you in some of these relationships. And I can tell your mom is cautious from like the emails that you got from her that you reprinted verbatim in the book. She's like, this is fine, but here's, you know, just keep focused, keep studying. I was like, such a Latina mom response to everything. She's like, keep your head down, keep studying, keep working hard. You know, I loved, I loved it. I thought her voice was so real throughout the story. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And she deserves that. I wish she would allow me to tell more of her story. But, you know, that might just be a process. And yeah. maybe after she sees how the how the community responds to this book, she'll be even more open to it because it's it's a remarkable story. 
Yeah. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear more. Oh, hey, here's a reminder. If you want to hang out with me in the beautiful highlands of Scotland and the busy, fabulous streets of London, I still have a few spots left on my small intimate retreat that I'm hosting in October 2024. We're starting in London. We are taking the sleeper train up to the north and we're spending three nights at Kinloch Lodge doing the most amazing things, eating incredible food, and being served by people who are not me, which is going to be a bonus. I would love to have you on this retreat. You can check out my website, aliciafmiranda.com, for more info. But please book without delay, because once it's full, it's full, and then you can't come anymore. But I would love to see you there. Now, we... Didn't meet at Harvard, did we? You you were there after me, so I don't think we met. Um, you're much yeah, younger. Yeah, I just missed you. I was a little, ba- <laughs> little baby. Little baby. Other. But you, you know, you've got you've got quite a bit about your experience at Harvard in the book. Obviously, you are a reporter now, and it's been in the news a lot lately, and not always for great reasons. And mm-hmm. you talk about this experience that you had that I think a lot of people that come from more modest backgrounds and go to Harvard share, which is this idea that as soon as you get your degree, you sort of become a privileged person in the eyes of everybody else, even if you don't feel that way. I mean, there are parts of the book where you're talking about struggling to pay your bills, moving back in with your mom. And yet you say, you know, I was no longer the underdog city school poster kid to root for. I was now considered to be an elite, a person of privilege by virtue of my education, regardless of nothing having materially changed for my family or nothing materially changing for my family. I mean, that is an experience that I think is is common to a lot of people who go through this. How are you still connected with the university? I know you're uh, reporting on it and talking about it. I mean, what is your feeling about that experience and your Harvard experience in general now, so many years since you graduated? Not as many as me, but still a lot of years since you graduated. Yeah, yeah. So I still have ties to Harvard in the sense of the the, the people who were my community then are still my community. There are a lot of Black Harvard women alumni who are just connected. Like we talk, we mentor each other, we offer advice. So that sort of thing. But I would say that there were there were periods in life where Harvard felt far away. I think the teaching chapter is a really great example of that, where I'm like, I don't feel like a Harvard grad. I'm <laughs> whatever that is, right, in people's minds, I'm struggling. I've got bill collectors calling me during the day while I'm at work, like... This is this is where class, these conversations about class really matter. And so people think that getting access to an elite institution means that you automatically know how to navigate that institution. That is also uh, something that is not taught. Right? These are all these sort of skills, uh, soft skills, and also the kind of cultural conditioning uh, that happens for middle class and upper middle class families where, you know, this is part of your education, knowing how to navigate. And so there were times where, again, it didn't feel like I was a person of privilege, although, you know, there was this aspect of privilege, right? I had the degree. I could always use the brand, so to speak, in trying to navigate and find opportunities But I think where the way that I look at it is that going there was a choice. I I had a vision of like what I wanted it to be. I think I had to separate. I I learned what it actually could be for me versus like what the fantasy was, right? 
Uh, one of those things was, you know, that Harvard was going to make me so smart. Mm. <laughs> it just, just, you know, going to put that out there. It doesn't make you smart, right? You you come in with certain habits and a certain hunger or a certain orientation towards learning and you get out of it what you put into it. But there's not like a 12-step program to becoming like some smart Harvard person. Yes. They don't like put the hat on you and then all of a sudden you're a genius. Yeah, like that's <laughs> that doesn't happen. But it, it's similar to Michelle Obama when she talks about becoming and how when she got to Princeton, she's like, oh, this is not like, <laughs> I thought these people were so much better than me. And like, that's not the case. I deserve to actually be here. So if anything, I think that is what Harvard taught me, right? The sense of like, whatever this secret magic was that was supposed to be like behind this door. No, like the magic is in you. (laughs) And, And so much of life is like what you make it. So in that sense, that is what I've taken away. And I'm really invested in the institution now, because it is under attack, not just Harvard, but higher education in general, there has been, for a lot of students of color, uh, there's anxiety, you know, if they're in high school and they're thinking about where they should go, where they'll be welcome. And so I want to be a resource in this moment. And I hope the book does that. If any high school student or young person is trying to make their way, I hope they pick it up and that they take something from it. I just... Yes, like 100% to all of it. Natasha, it has been amazing to have you on Extra Shot today. Before we go, I would love to know, you know, one another kind of parallel part of your journey is not just kind of around finding your identity and your professional career, but also coming to terms with your health and taking care of yourself and putting yourself first as you go through a number of health challenges in your life. What's the message in particular? A lot of women that listen to this podcast, a lot of women who don't always put themselves first when it comes to things like that. What is the message you want them to take away from your story? I want them to understand that you cannot be good for the world if you're not good for yourself, right? It's this strange orientation we have towards putting others first that really undermines that goal. (laughs) And uh, I remember, this is not in the book, but just you know, once having to go to the hospital with an issue related to my illness and my son sitting there, you know, with his dad and me just realizing that there were so many things that I'd done in trying to put other people first in, you know, the week that led up to this health incident. And I couldn't be there for him mm-hmm. uh, because I was now in the hospital bed. Right. And so it's this weird thing where we think that if we put others first, it's really putting them first when actually you have to take care of yourself so that you you can even like be of use or be you know there in the ways that you want to show up for other people and so this is a reorientation this is a it's a it's a conditioning that we have to undo and i just want to make space for people to to see that it's worth it i have been able to accomplish every dream i built a TV career, I've written a book, you know, I've I've traveled the country speaking. I am living my dream and I'm doing it even with a chronic condition. And so uh, you don't need to sacrifice yourself to, to, to have both of those things be true at the same time. Amen. American Negra is out now. You can pick it up everywhere books are sold. You should pick it up. I highly recommend it. If you have a long flight, you can just read it all the way through like I did. Natasha, I'm so Grateful to you for sharing your story and for coming on the podcast today. 
Alicia, you're a wonderful interviewer and author. I loved your book. So thank you so much for giving me space to share about my story. It was great to be on. And that's a wrap on this episode. Thanks for tuning in to Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. A very special shout out goes to my superstar team at Texture Sound for their support. Find out more about what I'm up to, my writing, events, and even the retreat I'm planning in Scotland at my website, aliciafmiranda.com or Instagram at aliciafmiranda. I'll talk to you next week.